Hi, Michael Glab here, producer and host of Big Talk. Our Alex Ashkin has the microphone this week, and his guest yesterday was Amrita Chakrabarty Myers, Indiana University Associate Professor of History and Gender Studies, as well as part of the faculties of American Studies and African American and African Diaspora Studies. The two left off at the end of Part 1, talking about Bloomington's reaction to the presence of white supremacists as vendors at the city's farmer's market the last few years. Myers has written the book, Forging Freedom, Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston, a history of free black women in the years prior to the U.S. Civil War. Go to WFHB.org to listen to the podcast of yesterday's edition. Now, let's go back to Alex and Amrita for more Big Talk. I think it's interesting that you're discussing sort of this point of internalized racism, in a sense. To me, I always think of the concept of like normative behavior, normative populations, because I think that ends up being a really big focus in both in a lot of social sciences, sort of understanding and taking a critical look at that sort of um, cultural construct, you know, whether we're discussing from like a queer theory perspective, the idea of heteronormativity to more social racial discussions where we're talking about the assumption that the average American is white male. That's a big issue where a lot of people, whether they acknowledge it or not, don't necessarily see that the system is set up in a way to sort of encourage or um, create that mental picture in our head of what the average American or what the average person is, looks like, does, thinks, and so on. And people also have the idea in their head of what the average racist is. They think that racism or racist means putting on a white bedsheet and hanging someone from a tree. They go to the most extreme acts or behaviors. And so when you say to someone, you know, you actually have bias or, you know, white supremacy has affected you or that, you know, you're holding ideas that are racist, they become defensive because to them, racist or white supremacy or racism automatically means Ku Klux Klan, lynching, or the most extreme forms of that behavior, just like normative or normativity is still that default sitting of, right, middle-aged, middle-class white male. What they fail to understand is that in having ingested white supremacist ideas and behaviors or racism or or unconscious bias goes along a large, long, you know, sort of line or gradations of unconscious uh, thoughts and behaviors. And that the most extreme and violent, it does not manifest in the majority of people. That you can't say, you know, just because you don't go out and participate in the kind of behavior that the insurrectionists did on the 6th of January who broke into the Capitol building, 
that's the most extreme kind of behavior, the Proud Boys, extreme behavior, the, the Klan terrorists li lynching people, that's the most extreme behavior. People think, well, I, that's not me, therefore I'm not a racist, right? I'm not right. a domestic terrorist. I'm not part of the Proud Boys or the Aryan Brotherhood or the Klan. That doesn't mean that you can't hold white supremacy or racist thoughts or feelings in your heart. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a a line, a gradation of behavior from zero to a hundred. You can hold, you can still still hold wrongful thoughts or feelings in your heart and not, not pick up a gun and try to infiltrate the Capitol. To sort of bring us back a little bit to Bloomington as a community and some of the challenges it's dealt with in the past, one of the things that uh, I actually picked up from your social media recently was a discussion regarding the selection for the upcoming MCCSC, Monroe County Community School Corporation, superintendent. There was a, a comment from the Bloomington, Indiana Black Democratic Caucus that read as follows. We know that diversity is invaluable to the health of an organization. The MCCSC school board has an opportunity to demonstrate its commitment to diversity by selecting a woman and or person of color to assume the role of MCCSC superintendent. The selection will be especially important in MCCSC's effort to increase the likelihood of attracting and retaining more teachers and staff of color. This is sorely needed. There's always been a little bit this weird assumption in my head that Bloomington has always been a bit of a haven for uh, African-American folks. And I think it really is shocking, in a sense, when we kind of look at the demographics and sort of the actions taken by the community. In particular, and one of the things I always use as a historical reference is there's historically been more people living in Morgan County which uh, has sort of a historically bad reputation, uh, particularly with white liberals about the African-American community, but seems from a functional perspective more welcoming than a place like Bloomington. How do we reconcile these things? How, it, is there a certain level of, you know, almost like tokenism in Bloomington where they say, oh, yeah, of course we want to make sure that we have African-Americans, BIPOC folks, and so on in our community, but doesn't really give them the tools, resources, opportunities to be meaningful. You know, our mayor once famously said that we are the blueberry in the tomato soup. And <laughs> regularly, regularly just say that that is the furthest thing from the truth. I also have regularly said that people who live in Bloomington need to stop pointing fingers at other communities like Martinsville and Bedford in terms of right, racial issues or problems because we need to clean up the mess in our own community before we begin pointing fingers at others. I believe the scriptural ver verse is to remove the log from your own eye before removing the splinter from your neighbors. It's very easy to talk about other communities and not deal with the problems in your own. We have the black population here is between three and 4%. The vast majority of the diversity in this community actually comes from the university. That's a rotating door in many ways, right? It's a revolving door in many ways. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you brought up the MCCSC issue. The 
press release that you were reading for reading from actually comes from yes the black democratic caucus and you know they also said the fact that the selection has to be more transparent it has to allow for public input if the voices of the parents and the community members are silenced regarding the person who will impact the lives of thousands of school children for years to come it's going to be a problem will the public be allowed input in a timely fashion Otherwise, the process not only lacks transparency, it, will also, it is also broken. And this is a real problem. You mentioned tokenism. It's not just the fact that we only have three to 4%, um, right, in terms of the overall African-American community. What I've noticed in the 15 years that I've lived in this community is that Bloomington has this habit of putting one person into an office or one person into um, a certain position of power and then sort of like patting itself on the back and saying, look what we did, look what we did. It's, it's rank tokenism um, in the worst possible way, especially because what they often do is they'll pick yes people. They'll pick African-Americans who won't rock the boat, to use another phrase that you used earlier in our interview. And this is not special to Bloomington. If you look across the nation, from the halls of the Oval, uh, you know, of the White House and the Capitol down through corporate America to academe, city halls uh, and everywhere else, because this is still a nation that is very much committed to the principles of both white supremacy and patriarchy. The women and people of color who get ahead are the ones who learn to color within the lines and who, know, who learn how to play the game. They know how to, you know, they play, you know, they, they know how to get along in the old boys network and the old boys club and who learn how to make men and white folks and white men feel comfortable. Therefore, they're the ones who get ahead. Look at corporate America and tell me how many black men and women are the CEOs or sit on the boards of directors of Fortune 500 companies. There's a reason for that. So it's... The system itself is set up and structured so that very few people of color get ahead. The ones who get ahead are the ones like Oprah Winfrey who make white people feel comfortable because they are not outspoken, they are not opinionated, they don't make white people feel like they have to do self-reflection and peel back the layers of the onion that I just finished talking about. Um, and so you hire one person you put one person into a position of power. I mean, even ex-former President Trump did that, right? Ben Carson. I mean, can Ben Carson be any more reflective of someone who has literally asked for an invitation to the sunken place? Mm -hmm. I mean, my goodness, right? I mean, in under, I mean, under those circumstances, President Trump's cabinet had been diversified and desegregated. I mean, that's the most absolute, you know, most obnoxiously, you know, ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But that's exactly what has happened. You can see it here in Bloomington, but Bloomington's not sort of like unusual or unique in that sense. You can see it in large cities, you can see it in small cities, but you token and handpick people who make you feel comfortable. But then you can say, but look, we have black people in government. We have black people in academe. We have black people in positions of power. But when it's one person, 
when it's somebody who is a yes person who makes you feel good and who says what you want them to, what you want to hear, who doesn't push you or force you to actually examine things and do any self-reflection, then how is this actually furthering the true agenda of equity and justice? It empties out any real meaning from DEIJ. And I mean, I've really gotten to the point where I don't even like those sort of diversity, right? Multicultural affairs. I'm interested in equity and justice, but (laughs) diversity, you can hire one person and say you're now diverse and multicultural, but are you actually interested in forwarding the agendas of equity and justice? If not, then hiring that one person has become meaningless. And also what happens is people who are truly committed to equity and justice, after you hire them, they often become so frustrated when they realize that you're not interested in really changing anything structurally that after one or two years, those people leave. Honestly, I think that's one of the more modern elements of a lot of the protests we saw in the last year, well, several years, honestly, is that one, the sense that we should have moved on from this, like not in a literal sense, like we shouldn't care, but we, we know that this is a problem. People have been in the streets chanting, protesting ever since Trayvon Martin. That really was sort of the catalyst of Black Lives Matter was like back in 2013. It blows my mind that it's like seven years later, a lot of the discussion really hasn't changed. There's still big pushes for just greater accountability, community oversight, and so on. And it, it, it's troubling because it, it really kind of makes, I think, people think that, yeah, the system is so entrenched in this practice or it's, you know, sort of self-perpetuating beliefs, whatever you might call it, that it inexorably twine, like entwined, you know, there is a systemic level of racism. Back in 2020, on, on June 5th, uh, there was a Bloomington Black Lives Matter protest titled Enough is Enough. That was sort of to bring attention to the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Elijah McClain, Breonna Taylor, and so on. And you spoke at that event in a very impassioned speech, which can be found online. Shout outs to Taryn over at Crybaby Electric Tattooing. But you sort of said like, there has always been this historical and sort of institutional link between policing and the slave patrols of the 17th, 18th, even 19th centuries in that there was sort of almost a a structural need for criminalization and dehumanization of black bodies. I know that you in the past have spoken with people like Chief Dickoff of the Bloomington Police Department and other folks. And it's, I think that question ends up being a huge issue because how do you come to an institution and ask it to be self-reflective, ask it to be open to reform, and uh, consider these lesser examined, lesser sort of represented voices in the institutions to view it as equal. Particularly when, as you said, sometimes 
people individually struggle to peel back those layers of the onion. That, um, I want to, first of all, just, I'm glad that you gave a shout out to, to Taryn. He um, did an amazing job videotaping a lot of that event and to the organizers of Enough is Enough, um, particularly Selena Drake um, and others who helped to put together that event. They, um, I was just invited to participate and they did all the legwork um, and the hard heavy lifting of, of putting that event together. Um, Selena is amazing. So I wanted to really shout out the organizers of um, Enough is Enough and they were kind enough to invite, uh, invite me to participate. But I think you, you know, really hit upon something that's very, very true. Like it's hard to ask individuals to, to do self-reflection. How do you ask structures and systems and organizations? Um, but I think that we, we have some good examples of how this can happen, uh, not only in other countries, but just also here in our own nation. I think that we are seeing it at work in places like Camden, New Jersey and also Newark, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you know, but Newark just released a report that not a single weapon was fired, not a single, single shot was fired by a Newark police officer in the entire year of 2020. And this is 2020, this is during COVID, this is during all the BLM protests and, and you know, parades and, and uprisings because of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in one of the most contentious years um, in recorded in our no lifetime, not a single weapon was fired in the entire Newark police force because of serious uh, de-escalation training that the Newark police department has undergone over the last three years. Mm -hmm. Number one, Camden. Camden is something that we can actually look at because they went through a serious overhaul and change um, in 2013, 2014. And the former police chief has gone on the record, done a number of interviews. He just retired. But NPR has done a wonderful, and, and Politico have done wonderful stories. And if you don't want to read it, you can listen to it. It's like a seven, eight minute segment if you Google it. Uh, Scott Richardson is a uh, former, former police chief. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, story. Um, and I mean, I'm not saying that it's perfect, but what I'm saying is that it's a template for what we can do. Camden had one of the highest murder rates in the nation, one of the highest complaints in terms of excessive use of force rates um, against the officers, terrible, terrible um, community relations. I mean, just a, it was a mess. The force was a mess. Okay. And the police chief was like, like, we need to, we need to change. This is not working. Mur high, violent crime was out of control, property crime was out of control, murder was out of control, use of force complaints were out of control. Nothing was getting done. It was a shambles. And everything he wanted to do was being blocked by the union, the police union. So they basically did, you know, he went to the state legislature, he went to the community, he went to all corporations, and they fired the entire police force the entire police force, including himself. Every fire, dissolved, dismantled, despite fired the entire police force and every single police officer had to reapply for their job if they wanted to be rehired. Now, some of them just didn't reply. Some of them, some of them retired. 
some of the ones who did reapply were not rehired because they had to go through stringent mental and psychological testing, stringent race or like racial and diversity tests. Like it was very, very, very tough to get rehired in terms of the psychological exams, the racial exam, like, you know, race, you know, anti-racism exams, everything. So some retired, some were not rehired. The ones that were, were now under a new county police force. It was no longer a city force. It was a police uh, county force. This new force, the, the whole mentality, uh, as the police chief said in his interview with NP NPR, was number one, we must change from a warrior mentality to a guardian mentality. Number two, no police force is legitimate that does not have the consent of the community that it guards. If it does not have the consent of the community, it is not legitimate. That was the mentality of the police force that was rebuilt in Camden in 2013-2014. Guardian, not warrior, consent of the community is a must or it is not legitimate. All these officers then were told, we now have a new system where you are not given points for giving tickets and making arrests. All of these police forces that we have in the US, police officers are rewarded for what? Arresting people and ticketing people. That's why at the end of the month, you see arrests and tickets go up, right? Because they have to make their quota. All the officers were told, you are not to ticket, you are not to arrest. That is not how the point system works. And, in, and they were put into play, they were put into uniform and dropped off for their eight, 10 or 12 hour shifts into their community and said, you're, you're gonna be picked up in 12 hours. You better go out and make friends, meet the people, meet the community, learn the neighborhood. You, you're hungry, better meet a restaurant owner. Need to use the bathroom, make a friend. It's community policing. That is what they had to do from the ground up. Learn the neighborhood, learn the community, make friends, hand out, not tickets, hand out business cards. Mm -hmm. Get to know them and have them get to know you. This has complete, it has changed Camden radically. Is it perfect? No. But when you talk to the community members of Camden, they will tell you, use of force complaints have dropped from 65 in a year to five. The murder rate has dropped from, from like, Camden has gone from being like one of the top murder cities in the world to like, there were like, like almost five, like five murders in the entire city last year. So violent crime has dropped. Murders have dropped. Property crimes have dropped. Community members say that it's stunning. Like they regularly, regularly interact with police officers. Police officers are constantly just calling them up to say, how are you? And they know their names. How are things going? How can we be helpful? Do you need anything? Is anything happening that you want to talk to us about? Just, just talk to us about. It's building community relations. Are there still issues? Yes. Too many of the police officers are still white compared to the demographic of the actual population of Camden. Too many of them are still from outside. These are things that still need to be worked out. But the actual population of Camden is so much happier 
because the police chief said, what I want to see are kids riding their bikes and people sitting on their porches. I want to see a city where people are actually living and, and thriving. And that's not what he has seen. And so over the course of six years, they have radically altered how policing happens in Camden. The salaries dropped and the benefits dropped. And yet the number of police officers has actually increased. Is it perfect? No. But there's a concrete example. Both cities in New Jersey, New, uh, Newark and Camden. He said, like, we are, we are not doing this right. It's broken. It's not working. Militarization is not working. Tanks, bearcats, automatic weapons, this mentality of the warrior police officer? No, this is what we must change. Process of building trust between the institution and the community. Exactly. But that is the very, that is the foundation of what BLM, when we call for defunding the police, we're also, we've been calling for community policing and we've been calling for restorative justice. We've been calling for things that, mean that we need less police officers in the long run because there is less crime, hmm. right? And we build and we, he, and we cause the, for there to be more trust between police officers and the people that they're actually policing in the first place because it's about guardianship and not warrior mentality. Why do you need a bear cat? Why do you need AK-47s? Why do you need this? Who are you... You know, who are you actually like going to war against, right? If you have all of these military armaments that are supposed to be used in, in times of war, well, who are you going to war against? I thought you're supposed to be here to protect and serve. But if you're going to war, that implies that these are people that are combatants, enemy combatants. If I'm your enemy, then you're clearly not here to protect and serve me. I want to touch on one quick quote you had from your June 6th speech last year. You said, white folks are saying black lives matter when black folks are dying. But white folks need to be saying black lives matter when black people are still alive. I think it's easy to say black lives matter when black people are, are like laying dead in the street and you see bloodstains and chalk outlines. I think it's a lot harder to say Black Lives Matter when Black folks are like staring you in the face and saying, we want equity. We want a seat, not just at the table, but at the head of the room. We want justice. We want reparations. We want structural changes, right? We want the laws to change. We want the police force to look different. I appreciate the thoughts, the challenge for not only myself, but for all the listeners out there who are hoping to do better, not only by their friends, family, but also to their community at large, help make it a more equitable and just place. Thank you so much, Amrita Chakrabadi Myers, for joining us today on Big Talk. I'm just so fascinating to sort of, you know, peel back the layers of the onion. I'm going to keep using it uh, just in terms of how we can hopefully improve our communities for the better. Once again, 
My guest today was Amrita Chakrabai Myers, Associate Professor of History and Gender Studies, as well as African American Diaspora Studies at Indiana University Bloomington. Thank you so much. And to all of our listeners out there, have a great evening. <laughs>